If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 13 this morning. Romans 13 is where we're going to be today. In recent years, Christians and non-Christians alike have looked across the landscape and the future of America and have noticed a disturbing trend, a trend that they've actually done studies on and gathered some statistics about. And what they have seen is that people in their 20s and even their early 30s don't want to grow up. They don't want to get married. They just want to date. They just want to have fun. They don't want to get jobs. They just want to putz around and live with their their families, their parents, and their basement to mooch off them. And though it's hard to know in a study like that what motivates that kind of behavior, almost certainly it's because they simply don't want responsibility. They don't want responsibility in their life. After all, there is a weight to the responsibility of marriage. At least there should be if it's done well. There is a weight of responsibility when you venture out and get a job and get a mortgage. There's suddenly a weight of responsibility there. And we want to be careful, not just in our culture, to, to not have it in good hands by, by entrusting it to those who don't want to bear the weight of responsibility. But that's not just a cultural problem. Some Christians fall into this trap as well. Some Christians fail to take up the responsibility that comes with being a child of God. We've been making our way through Paul's letter to the Romans one chapter at a time. And this morning we come to chapter 13 where Paul deals with this issue of the responsibility, the joyful, privileged responsibility that we have as God's people. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. 
The summarizing theme that emerges from this chapter when we take it as a whole is this idea of responsibility. As Christians, we have certain responsibilities that should direct our lives. Rather than just feel comfort that we have salvation, forgiveness, and and therefore live aimlessly, selfishly, we are called to be God's people in the world. And that entails certain duties, certain obligations, certain responsibilities, and how we go about living our lives. Not just in the church, but also with one another out in the world. And so in these opening verses, Paul explains, first of all, that we have a responsibility to submit to authority, to submit to authority. Now, if there's any doubt about that, if there's any truthfulness in your mind, I mean, just look at the verse. How do you get around it? Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Paul could not be more clear, and yet that is a huge issue for us, not just culturally, but also spiritually. Culturally, we love to thumb our nose at authority. I mean, we, we, we are a culture that is grounded in independence of revolt. And that, that, that is still in our bones and how we live and how we think. But even theologically, this is huge. Consider that, that the very first sin back in the garden with Adam and Eve, whether you say it was idolatry or pride or lack of faith, whatever it was, what the evidence of that sin was in their heart was a refusal to submit to God's authority. He had said, don't eat from the tree. And they said, we're going to eat from the tree. And the rest, sadly, is sinful history. Rejection of authority, then, is a serious business. People die and experience God's judgment because of it. That's what happened in the the garden, and that's what's happened to us now as a result of their refusal to submit to authority. Now, we experience judgment. But we're not just talking about spiritual authority. We're not just talking about God's authority. Paul here is speaking about the authority of secular government as a ruling force over our lives, even as Christians. Why should we submit to them? Paul gives us three reasons in these opening verses. First, we are to be subject to the governing authorities because they have been instituted by God. They have been instituted by God. Verse 1, again, be subject, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, That's not an original idea from Paul. It's not that he was just pondering one day, I wonder how government is created. That comes from God. No, I mean, that's that's not what we see. We see even throughout the Old Testament, we see this being affirmed that not just God's leaders in Israel and among his people, but, but all governing authorities in every nation are established, are instituted by God. Think about what we saw in Daniel a few years ago from chapter 2 and from chapter 4. God not only changes the times and the seasons, he also removes kings and sets up kings. Should you... Do your due duty, your privilege as a citizen, and vote? Yes. But remember, God is the one establishing who sits in the Oval Office. A few chapters later, in chapter, Daniel chapter 4, we see the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets it over the lowliest of men. The Bible is clear. Human government, human authorities have been instituted by God. Not just as an idea, but the very individual's that occupy positions of power have been established by God, sometimes as a judgment upon wicked people. But more broadly, more broadly, for our good, as we'll see in a minute. We submit ourselves, therefore, to authorities because, Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
and those who resist will incur judgment. Is that judgment directly from God or judgment from the authorities? I'm not sure it makes a difference. Either way, if we resist authority, what's going to happen but judgment, punishment? Now, when we, we think about this, questions abound in our minds about what, how this works out and, and what are the implications of this. And because we're taking the entire chapter at a time this morning, we, we don't have time to unpack all of the details. But one obvious question is this. Does that mean that it is always wrong to disobey governing authorities? Is it an absolute command that Paul lays down? If it is, I would say probably 99% of not 100 of us are busted cold just by the speed at which we drive on, a, on any, any given day. Yeah, I know. The, the toe-stepping came early, but let's just move on. Think, th- th- think about this probably perhaps even more crucially. If we were a citizen of Germany in the 1930s, should we have been subject to Adolf Hitler and help to rout out or round up Jews for internment and extermination? Submit to governing authorities. Should we have submitted in that? No, absolutely not. You say, well, well how, how do we know? Well, first of all, let's step back and think about the larger testimony of God's Scripture. I'm not just saying the Bible says this, but we say that doesn't make sense, so we reject it. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is let's think about the totality of God's picture. Think about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus. They were commended and rewarded by God for refusing to allow Pharaoh to kill Hebrew babies. Pharaoh said, death to all Hebrews, and they said, I don't think so. And they hid them and preserved their life. We also think of the story of Daniel's friends who ended up in a fiery furnace. Why? Because they refused to bow the knee and engage in idolatry. We said, we worship the one true living God, and therefore we refuse to submit to you, O king. And he said, even if it means the fire? They said, even if it means the fire. And what happened? God showed up, and he preserved their life in the midst of that fire. He honored them, rewarded them for their faithfulness through disobedience to the King Nebuchadnezzar. In the New Testament, we think of the apostles who refused to stop preaching Jesus, though they were commanded by the Jewish authorities. So so just once again, as a kind of a basic guide, here's what we would say. When government commands us to sin or hinders us from doing good as commanded explicitly by God, like preach the gospel... That's when we should refuse to submit. But understand, that's the exception. That's not the rule. You're not going to go through your life constantly, every day, refusing to submit to authority. Nor is that the focus here. Paul is saying our basic response, our first response, what goes on not just in what we do, but in our minds and our hearts, is a submission to authority and obedience to those that God has established in governments over us. And that means that we do that even if we don't like the policies that they establish, even if they are of a different political party or a different political stripe. We submit to them because they've been instituted by God and because God has given them for our good. They are given for our good. We understand that all human government is flawed. None are perfect. Nevertheless, God uses government to serve his good purposes. Paul says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Now, once again, we should not take that as an absolute statement, but as a general one. If we take it like that, we cannot help but see that it's true. Generally speaking, we don't need to fear the government if we're obeying the law. 
If I'm cruising down Euclid Avenue with my seatbelt on, the crew said at the speed limit, and the cop comes up next to me, I don't have anything to worry about. Now, if I'm doing all that, I still might feel great, but then he pulls me over anyway because I forgot to renew my plates, and then we're in a problem, right? Which has happened more than once, sadly. Paul's point is the, the, the police, the government has been instituted to prevent lawlessness and keep peace. They are there to restrain evil and prevent anarchy. And so if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, we don't need to fear the government by and large. At the same time, he says, if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath of the wrongdoer. Now, the idea of bearing the sword there, when you look once again through the Old Testament and you think about how it's used in secular Greek culture, Paul is talking about capital punishment. That God has entrusted that to secular human government as a means of avenging justice and holding back evil. I mean, if someone says, hey, if you murder that guy, you're going to be put to death. Well, that's going to make you stop and think twice about it. But more than that, more than that, I know capital punishment can be controversial. Um, lots of countries have banned it. But so, 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 so is Paul, is this something we, we grew out of? No, listen, this goes back to the Old Testament and God's covenant with Noah. Remember, after the flood, there's a reset, and he gives a covenant, God gives a covenant with Noah and establishes certain principles for all of mankind. And what is one of those principles? Capital punishment. If you take the willingly, premeditatedly, we're not talking about involuntary manslaughter, we're talking about homicide. If you take the life willingly of another person, your life has become forfeit because it is such a heinous crime. Why is it such a heinous crime? Because we're not animals. We are made in the image of God. And to destroy an image bearer means that we have forfeit our own life. Here in Romans 13, Paul picks up that strand of thought, not only for all of mankind in Genesis 9, but through the Old Testament law. And he says, it is a legitimate use of government's power to keep the peace and enforce justice by not just criminal sentencing, but even all the way to the point of bearing the sword and capital punishment. Now, we need to be clear here, because people will say, well, I don't understand how I can love my neighbor and, and endorse that. You need to understand there's a difference between our living our lives individually as Christians and the responsibilities and the roles that we have in, in human government. What did we see in chapter 12? It is not my responsibility as an individual to engage in capital punishment. I don't, I don't pull out my sword, or in this day and age, my 357 or whatever, and say, justice is served, punk, boom, 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 boom. Done. I walk away. No, no, no. That, that, that is, that's, not, that's not what happens. Paul says that is the role of government. There is a due process of law. Are they guilty? Are there witnesses of that crime? Is there evidence? They're found guilty, and therefore, this is the punishment that they deserve. So just to, to think about this in a particularly difficult case, I was listening to one, one of my former seminary professors talk about a woman he knew years and years ago out in, in uh, California who was attacked and violated in her own home. Uh, she had left the back door open. A guy came in, asked for a glass of water, and ended up attacking her. And as a Christian who deeply loved the Lord, she was able to forgive her attacker. Nevertheless, she also went to the police station and identified him in a lineup. She testified against him at a trial. Why? Because justice needed to be served. He had done this three times before, 
And if nothing else, out of an act of love for the greater neighbors in the society in which she lives, she sought justice through God's ordained means in the world, namely human government. So, so as a Christian, she could both forgive and say, I'm still going to turn you into the police. Though imperfect governing authorities have been instituted by God for our good. This is why we seek to submit to them. That They are there for our good. Therefore, they are also owed our respect. They are owed our respect. It's not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience that we are to be in subjection to authorities. Remember what we saw last week, how these verses here in chapter 13 fall under the heading of Romans 12, 1 and 2. How we live out our relationship to authority is a means of worshiping God. And Paul gives two examples of what it means to, 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 to show respect or, or, or obedience to those in authority over us. First of all, we show respect by paying our taxes. Paul says in verse 6, Pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom, are owed, uh, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. I, I, I don't know where you're at, but I'm of the persuasion that our federal government should have a balanced budget. We should not spend more than what we're taking in. And they don't do that. <laughs> they love racking up debt. Does that mean I say, well, you're wasting money. I withhold my taxes. No, because they're still the ones that God has established an authority over me. It doesn't matter if I think that they spend too much on the military or on health care or support ungodly programs or collect too much in taxes or whatever you think. What do we do as, as God's people? We, what are we responsible to do? We, we pay our taxes. Now, we can complain about things in this country and how they don't run well, but remember, remember from where Paul is writing this. He is living in the Roman Empire. And when it comes to bad, corrupt government, debauched government, America is still in the sandbox compared to ancient Rome. You, you, you know, we can look out and see lots of bad things, but in some ways it does not compare to what Paul is seeing at Rome. And what is he saying? Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Obey authority. Even harder, though, is the respect and honor that comes in our attitudes. Pay to all what is owed to them. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I enjoy listening to the news on the radio when I'm in the car, and I have to be very careful with my attitude because sometimes it is very easy to get frustrated by, by politicians, by government, and the decisions that are made. But one of the things that, that helps my sanctification in this area is knowing that I have four kids. And if I hear them say, Obama's an idiot, they've broken Paul's command here. They've dishonored and fail to show respect to the ones in authority. So, so I need to not only watch my language but I need, and my attitude, but I need to convey to them things they hear on the, on the school ground or even teachers say that, listen, that they are still an authority over us. They're st it's still that the office of president, and we must have respect for that. We are to honor them. You say, isn't that hard? Heck yeah, it's hard. <laughs> but that doesn't mean we, we just abandon it. That's our responsibility as God's people living in a secular world. Think about Daniel serving under Nebuchadnezzar or Paul in prison under Felix and how they show deference to those ungodly leaders. Even if they are dead wrong in what they're doing, they are still in authority over us. So we cannot demean them even if they are in direct opposition to God. That's part of our responsibility as God's people. 
But looking more broadly, that's certainly part of it, but looking more broadly, we see we not only have a responsibility to submit to authority, but also to love our neighbor. Love your neighbor. That's what Paul says in verses 8 through 10. Notice, I I love the transition that he makes here. Look back up at verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, some have latched on to verse 8, and they've taken this as a command never to have any debt. Owe no one anything. Well, obviously, it's unwise to take on lots of debt. But Paul isn't forbidding all loans or debt here. If anything, he's making the point, if you have debt, pay it back. Don't default. Don't ignore it. Pay your bills. His point really doesn't have anything to do with money per se at this point, though. What he's doing is flipping the language to say this. We owe a debt to every single person we know and don't know to love them. That's the the kind of unfulfillable debt that we owe everyone. So everyone in this room, I am called to love you. We'll unpack what that love looks like in a minute. But guess what? It doesn't, it's not like one act. I do one thing for you. I've loved them. I'm done. No, it's an ongoing act. It's an unfulfillable obligation, a responsibility to love our neighbor. See, where does that obligation come from? Where does that, ob- where does that responsibility originate? Well, ultimately, it's the depth of God's love that he has shown to us in Christ. We, we therefore have the responsibility to, in turn, not only receive that love, but now to show that love to others. Then think about uh, the, the song that Isaac Watts penned and how he meditates on the love of God to the cross. He says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory got died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast... And save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then he makes this point of application in the fourth verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. We are debtors to God's love for us in Christ. And that debt of love is not simply directed toward God, but it's directed towards others as well. Notice how important this love is or or the power of this love. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in some ways, that's surprising that Paul says this because just previously in this book, he has gone out of his way to make the point that as Christians in a new covenant, we're no longer under the Mosaic law. So, so, so it's not our law, it's not our covenant. And yet here he is citing these laws. And so once again, you've got a huge issue here about how the the new covenant Christian relates to the old covenant law. And we're not going to do it justice, but let me just be real simple and say that what Paul is showing here and what he explains in other parts of his letters is that we are no longer under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ. 
What's the difference? The difference is the law of Moses was bound up with the Mosaic covenant, the specific covenant that God made between God and Israel. And it had certain entailments, certain obligations, certain responsibilities, certain commands that were just for them. And that's not the case for us now. And so practically, what do we do? When we are seeking direction on how to live the Christian life, we start in the New Testament. Do we find continuity between the law of Moses and the law of Christ? Yes. Why? Because they both came from God. They're both reflections of God's character to His people. And therefore, it's not surprising that we see overlap. And what Paul is saying here, he is quoting not because these are authoritative from the Old Covenant, but because these same commands bleed into the New Covenant, under the law of Christ. Guess what? Murdering is still wrong in the New Covenant. That's what he's saying. Committing adultery, still wrong in the new covenant. Not stealing, still wrong in the new covenant. Paul is saying that the moral norms of the new covenant when, uh, are, are fulfilled when we love others. Love, he says, does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. In other words, all the law pointed to is fulfilled when we love one another. All of those laws, you go back through 613 of them, I think, in the Old Testament, all of them are geared towards this, loving God and loving neighbor. So when we love neighbor, we're fulfilling the intent and the purpose of the law. Furthermore, it helps define love. You know, how do we define love today in our culture? I hooked on a feeling, dun, 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 right? I mean, that, that's how we define love. It's emotion. It's feeling. And, and Paul says, no, that, that's not biblically the standard for, for love. How many times has someone justified adultery by feelings of love? I, I made a commitment to this person. I had, I'd said vows, probably in a church before, at least in theory, before God. But now this person, oh my goodness, it's exactly what I've been looking for in my life. I just feel so good when I'm with them. How, how, how can I not... Go away from and leave the person that I don't love and be with this person that I do love. Paul says very simply, that's not love, that's selfishness. That's what's motivating that decision. Love your neighbor and love them like this. And he issues specific commands. Says, this is what love looks like. It's not just whatever you want it to be. It's not whatever you think of. It is expressed in and measured by the commands that God gives for how we ought to live our lives. That can be summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's not just actions, not just don't murder, don't steal, but it's also, it's also our attitudes, our intentions, our thoughts is do not covet. You understand that, that the sin to covet precedes the sin to steal. Physically, there's nothing I can do to let you know I'm coveting. But if I steal, you know I've coveted. Because covenant is a sin of the heart. And Paul is saying, look, it's not just the actions, it's also your heart, it's your intentions. It goes down to the core of your being. This is the standard for love. This is a command, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is not a command to love ourselves, as some have said. Rather, having made us, God knows we always want what's best for us. Very famously, Blaise Pascal, the mathematician, Christian philosopher, put that together in your head, said even the person who commits suicide thinks they're doing what's best for them in that moment. That, that's what motivates us. And so Paul says, 
or the inspiration of God, that that's what love looks like. When we act and when we will in ways that are best for another person. What does that mean? That means that, that love is never exhausted by mere commands. That's the starting point, not the end point. Yes, all true biblical love is seen in the fulfillment of those commands, but it goes beyond it as well. I can never commit adultery in the past or in the future. That doesn't mean that I'm loving my wife the way that she needs to be loved, right? It's a minimum standard. Don't commit adultery. Jesus ratched it up. Don't lust. Okay, so I don't lust after other women. I don't commit adultery. Is that all that my wife deserves or needs? Is that what's best for her? No. No. It goes beyond that, doesn't it? It goes beyond that to thinking sacrificially about, about her needs and her desires and her wants and what's going to make her happy. It's about thinking what is it that's going to be best for her in this moment and doing that. And once again, I don't get to decide what's best. God tells us what is best. And so just to, to, to kind of close this up, the most, we, we just need to be clear, the most loving thing we can do, and I say we need to be clear because we struggle with this, the most loving thing we can do is tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ and help them become mature disciples of Jesus. And so if, if we think we love others, our, our neighbors, coworkers, family, friends, physical neighbors, and, and we never have a desire or never open our mouths to share Christ with them, we can't say that we really love them because we're not doing or giving what's best for them. Paul says, as God's people, we have a responsibility to submit to authorities. We have a responsibility to love our neighbor. And finally, we have the responsibility to walk in faithfulness. That's what he says in verses 11 through 14. Walk in faithfulness. In these final verses, Paul issues a call to war. He is looking at the Roman Christians and he is, in a sense, holding up their draft cards and saying, hey, remember remember what you were called into? Remember what you were called to be a part of here? Remember, you have a responsibility to head into battle against sin for the sake of righteousness. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, but the day is at hand. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about redemptive history. He's talking about God's work in the world. He's not literally writing from himself, oh, it's almost nighttime. Come on. Um, he, he's talking about the timing of what God is doing and how he's fulfilling his plan and his purposes. Spiritually speaking, we're still in the darkness. We're still at night because the new creation has not yet come. Remember Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 8. But through the invasion of Christ into history, fulfilling God's saving purposes, the earliest fingers of light are observable on the edge of the horizon. The day is about to break in, he says. What day is that? The day of Christ's return, when all evil will be routed. It will be condemned and consigned to hell, and God will forever be with his people in a new heaven and a new earth. Therefore, our lives Paul is telling us should be lived in light of that coming day. Listen to what Legan Duncan says. Christian ethics are rooted in what Christians believe about the end. Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, but he is coming to judge and he's coming to draw his people to himself. And Christians are conscious of that reality in their Christian living. You live in the days between the first advent of the Lord and the second advent of the Lord. And the next great event, the next grand event in God's redemptive scheme is going to be the coming of the Lord. And you live in light of that reality. 
How do we do that? What does it look like? Paul says two things. First, you cast off your sin. You cast off your sin. Verse 12, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. We like to believe, especially among um, higher academic settings, that we are more evolved than ancient man, but visit any college campus, trendy social club, or certain people's parties, even the Olympic Village in whatever country is hosting it. And what are you going to see? Orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. In fact, what's more different, the only thing that's different between now and then is that we've become more creative in the ways that we indulge in these sinful activities. As we think through this, I mean, some of this seems a little obvious for us, right? But let's just land on a couple of these and, and let's just stop and, and think a little bit. First of all, this idea of drunkenness. We need to be clear, the Bible never forbids drinking alcohol. It's never, it's never, a, it's never a command that says don't drink. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, we see the people of God in the Old and the New Covenants drinking, but there is the overwhelming command from the beginning to the end not to get drunk. And in fact, drunkenness is often associated with a lack of understanding of the ways of God and a, a consumption of sinful activity. So if you're going to drink, you need to first ask yourself why you're drinking. What, what, what are you seeking to accomplish in consuming beverage alcohol? The reason drunkenness is a sin, let's just be clear, is because it impairs our ability to think wisely about living out God's ways. We are no longer in full control of ourselves. The Spirit cannot have full control of ourselves, Paul says in Ephesians 5. So being sloshed is not the biblical measure of drunkenness, okay? Being, being Otis, locking himself in the jail cell, and the group, that's not the measure of drunkenness. Impaired decision-making is the standard of drunkenness from a biblical worldview. So the, the, the point that I'm getting at is this. I, 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 we do not need to lay down an extra law. We don't need to say, well, the Bible doesn't say don't drink, but we're saying we're not going to drink. You should not. I'm not going to say that. But what I am saying is, you, and the pun is intended, you better think soberly about why and how you're drinking. I, I will just say that based on the totality of the Bible's teaching on drunkenness, the, the huge differences between the kind of alcohol that is consumed in our culture and the biblical culture, and the larger issue of alcohol abuse that permeates our society, Melinda and I have just said, we don't need alcohol. Is it a sin to drink any little bit? No. But it's a sin to get drunk, and we just need to go there. This is not a path that we think is going to add any benefit to our lives. And as Christians, you need to think wisely about this and you need to come to your own consensus, your own thinking about the whys and the hows of consuming alcohol if that's what you're going to do. And that decision-making should allow you to completely and fully cast off drunkenness. That's Paul's command here. Likewise, we need to cast off sexual immorality. If our sexual is consumed by alcohol, it worships at the altar of sex. It drives marketing, thoughts about identity. Have you thought about that? I mean, what is the whole bathrooms and la da da da? It is all about one thing. It is about sexuality. As if somehow you can abstract that from God's biological design and marriage design. That's what we've done. And so now sex is just a thing rather than an expression of intimacy between one man and one woman in a committed relationship. 
And like alcohol, sex can be enslaving. In the right context, God's design, sexual intimacy is a wonderful gift from God. I mean, let's not kid ourselves here, right? As Christians, we don't need to be prudes about sex and marriage. It's great. But sex outside of marriage is painful and leads to all kinds of problems that God does not intend. Therefore, whatever kind of sexual immorality, whatever kind of sensuality that you might be flirting with, in terms of the media that you consume, in terms of the conversations that you have with people at work, in the emotional relationships you might be cultivating that might draw you away from a spouse or lead into premature intimacy, Paul says, cast those things off. You have a responsibility as God's people to cast them off. You have no part of that. that that's, that's, that's an example of walking in darkness, and we are called to wake up and pursue the light. Perhaps those things aren't serious problems for you. Paul might nail you by talking about quarreling and jealousy. Do you like to fight? Do you like to have a bad attitude about things? Do you like to complain? Do you get jealous when people are, are, are receiving things that don't belong to you? Do you think I should be doing that? I could do that better. Cast it off. What is the source of all these things? A desire to be self-determinative. An attitude that casts off authority and love and leads us to do what we think is best for us. It's the definition of self-love. What does Paul say? We have responsibility to walk properly as God's people, to say no to sin, to cast off those works of darkness. This morning, if you're here and these things are a part of your life and you are feeling conviction, good. But don't, don't stay in guilt. Look to Christ and you will find not just freedom but forgiveness from these things. This is the message of the Bible. Do not misunderstand. The Bible only condemns in order to show you the way of escape of your condemnation. Does God hate sin? Yes. But He loves you. And He sent Christ to die and pay the penalty for that sin. So there's always hope, even in the midst of condemnation from the biblical teaching. There's always hope in Christ to be free and forgiven from these things. This morning, look to Christ, repent, and trust Him for that. Paul says that as we seek to walk faithfully, we not only cast off our sin, but we must also put on our Savior. Put on your Savior. See, the Christian life is never just about stopping immoral or ungodly behavior. It's also about engaging in righteousness and establishing godly habits. So verse 12 says, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And again in verse 14, put on. What, what does this armor look like? Put on, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So casting off the works of darkness is parallel to make no provision for the flesh. Don't plan for sin. Don't give it quarter in your home. If you're a pirate fan, don't engage in parlay with the enemy, okay? You, you give it no position, no provision. Put on the armor of light that is put on Christ himself. That is the antidote for the poison of sin, our union with Christ. And Paul's already talked about in Romans chapter 6 and 7 especially. Paul has shown us that when we put our faith in him, God supernaturally unites our life to the life of his son. And as a result, we not only have forgiveness and life, but we also have the ability to resist sin and to be sanctified. So not only have we put on Christ already, but we continually strive to put on Christ, to walk by faith and receive the grace that we have through him. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on these verses in 1881. He titled the message, Dressing for Morning. Uh, just as a side note, 
you would do a lot worse than to look this sermon up online and spend 30 minutes reading a Spurgeon sermon. It, 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 will, it will bless you and be helpful to you. In fact, maybe sometime I should just read one of his sermons instead of preaching my own. But that being said, this sermon I found particularly helpful and interesting because he draws out all this imagery of taking off and putting on. Uh, staying, getting up and being awake in the morning. And he says, what do you do when you wake up? He goes, you take off your night clothes, you take off your PJs, and you put on your clothes for the day. And he says, and when the Christian does that, when the Christian dresses, what does he put on but the very armor of Christ? Why? Because life is spiritual war. Haven't you felt it? Those days when perhaps... Maybe it's been weeks, you've not walked with God, you've not had devotions, and suddenly you find yourself out in the, out in the, out in the wilderness saying, what, what am I doing out here? I feel no love for God. I'm, I'm giving into all kinds of temptation. What, what has happened? Spurgeon says, brothers, you may as well expect a conflict, for it is sure to come, and it will be wise to put on your harness for the fight. Dress according to what you will meet during the day. You are not at home yet. The land of peace is yet beyond you. You are in the enemy's country. Put on the armor of light. Perhaps before you get down to breakfast, an arrow will be shot at you by the great enemy. Or you may come downstairs after the morning prayer, feeling as safe as if you were among the angels, and yet you will not get through the first meal in the day without an assault from the arch enemy, or an outburst of your own corruptions, or attack from the world. Your foes may be in your own household. They may wound you at your own table. Before you leave your bedchamber, you'd better put on the girdle, the helmet, the breastplate, the shield. You'd better take the complete panoply. A Christian is never safe unless he is protected from head to foot by grace. For in such a world as this, you know not behind what bush the assassin may be lurking or from what corner the fatal bolt may fly. Go forth as a mailed knight to the war, for the battle rages on all sides, and you need the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. The saint must be a man of war from his youth. He must pray and his hands may be, that his hands may be taught to war and his fingers to fight. That's the image of the Christian life that Paul has here. And Spurgeon brings it out and applies it beautifully. Perhaps the question in your mind is, how do we put on this armor though? You know, Paul loves this metaphor of armor. He uses it three or four, maybe even five times throughout his letters. And each time we look at the different contexts, what we see is a really simple strategy for suiting up and getting ready for the fight against sin for righteousness. We actively set our minds on spiritual things by reading and meditating on God's Word. We enjoy the comfort and correction that we receive from being together with God's people. And we receive the grace that we need in times of trouble by calling out to God morning, noon, and night. Amazingly, there's a little book that we might be reading in community groups that talks about this very thing. Because if we don't get those basics, you will fail in the Christian life. To simplify, wearing the armor is both a passive resting, trusting in Christ, as well as an active obedience to Christ. My senior year in college, I was burning the candle not at both ends, but probably three or four ends. I was working three jobs, taking a full load of classes, and I was engaged, preparing to get married. And one cold spring Sunday morning, I'd gotten up early as usual, got ready for church, and set off on the highway for my hour-long drive to worship with uh, my church family back at my home church. But the weeks, probably even the night before, the late nights had caught up with me. And as I'm driving, probably about a, a quarter of the way there, uh, I can realize I am beginning to get drowsy. My eyes are beginning to get heavy. 
And before I could turn on the radio, before I could, in the old crank style, roll down the window to get the cold air in, the next thing I know, I'm waking up from being asleep because my entire car is just shaking. And, and I, I'm suddenly I'm alert and I'm realizing that my car is slid off. I'm going sideways, half on the highway, half off, and there's a massive metal sign that's coming. It was a sobering, wakeful experience that was also filled with complete terror. Loved ones, let me just say, some of you are living the Christian life drowsy and asleep. Some of you are not aware of the spiritual dangers that are around you. Some of you have completely forgotten the responsibilities that we have as God's people to live in this world as ambassadors from Christ. And Paul says, the hour has come for us to wake up. To remember that, that the night is leaving and the day is dawning. The return of Christ is on the horizon. And we need to put our hand to the plow, as it were, and to work hard, striving to cast off the ways of darkness and put on the armor of the light of the righteousness of Christ. We reveal the life-changing nature of the gospel as we submit to even ungodly authority, as we love even unlovable neighbors, and as we walk difficultly but faithfully before God in this world. This morning, as we think about Romans 13, walk away with this in your mind. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light by faith in Christ. Father, we're so thankful for the instruction that you give. God, we're thankful that you do not allow us to, to, to coast, but God, you make clear the weight and the responsibility of living the Christian life. But Father, it is such a joyful responsibility because we are able to remember all that you have loved and given that we might be part of your people. You have allowed the shedding of the blood of your own son that all of the stains of sin might be cleansed from our souls and we might stand righteous as your children. Father, help us to hear and believe and obey your word this morning. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.